Okay, so we've come to that special hallowed day where the uh, end of the Vasa, the Pawarana day, and this is a Lumpur Cha tradition of the all of the more junior members of the community giving Dhamma talks. And so uh, the Ajans get a little bit of a break from having to give a talk, and we can hear what what some of the other community members have to say. And so I've got a bowl of names here. I'll be picking at random from uh, the Anagarkas up to uh, up to our new Ajahn, Ajahn Suhajo, just a new Ajahn, ten, completed ten Vasas. And uh, so, uh, yeah, and just uh, when I call each person's name, you can, uh, you're welcome to come up to the uh, seat in the middle and um, uh, first uh, pay, paying respects to Long Pa and then, and then you can uh, uh, few reflections five, ten minutes can be uh, whatever feels comfortable and uh, so yeah, we'll just uh, or it can be Shorter, if that's what you're comfortable with, also, whatever's coming up for you. Tan Rakito. <laughs> What's coming up for you? Tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. Udang namang sankang namasami. This is uh, kind of a Ajahn payback day, I think, uh, a little bit for all those uh, all those teaching days they give. Um, well, let's see what's going on. This um, this is my my fifth uh, fifth vasa now. Um, going into my Majima years. Now, um, no longer that new bhikkhu, somebody really important now, and uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it doesn't quite feel like that. Maybe, um, uh, and I guess over the over this uh, last period of time, I think the most uh, the thing that uh, happened for me that it was. Uh, Maybe sticking out for me, uh, <clears throat> kind of a personal accomplishment that that turned out all right for me was uh, um, being able to uh, chant the uh, Padimoka for the first time um, back in oh, I guess it would be back in August now, and uh, yeah, it's something I had just. Uh, uh, was it started off as just kind of a 
a dream, an aspiration, with a lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, more than oh, probably two and a half years ago, um, to uh, yeah, just eventually being able to do it. Uh, you know, not and it wasn't a, any kind of a standout, stellar uh, performance, but it was it was fine by me. It was you know it wasn't too long. It didn't have too too many mistakes and it was a kind of a legal chant so it it felt yeah it felt good it was a very satisfying feeling um it's uh yeah it's something that um <clears throat> i never would have dreamed uh that i would ever be able to do even in in my life uh being someone uh you know a kind of a lungta I guess you'd say someone who's ordained late in life. I never had to use, uh, uh, even in my school years, uh, these kind of faculties of memorization, and uh, um, I never really cared to. I wouldn't, yeah, it just never really. I just ne- I would never dream of doing something like this back in my lay years. It just uh, I had too many other things I was uh, interested in, but. Uh, Coming here and, uh, and, um, and ordaining, and then uh, going to Patimokas and just seeing the uh, the bhikkhus uh, go through this chant that can take anywhere from a half hour to you know around an hour is, uh, and sometimes it's it's even done flawlessly with. Uh, I think it's somewhere around thirteen thousand words. I think. To memorize and uh, yeah, I, I just found that just so impressive and inspiring that um, someone would want to pick this up and try it, and that people actually could do this. And and um, and for some strange reason, I thought well, maybe I, I I should try <laughs> I should try this. Um, and uh, yeah, so I. After some time, I you know I kind of pondered it, and uh, and then uh, when I was over in Thailand, sitting in quarantine for COVID in Bangkok, just starting my year away, I got the bright idea: oh, this would be a perfect time to start learning Patty Mocha. And uh, so I pull out my little yellow book, and I figured out: oh, I'll just start. I'll just start with the four, the first four rules, and and just see what happens. And uh, after two weeks in quarantine, I think, oh God, I don't think I could even get the four rules straight after that time. And I mean, and typically when someone is chanting, probably those first rule four uh, rules would be chanted in less than, you know, be like a minute or, or two at most. And uh, but I had. I'd, like all day, I'd be trying to memorize this, and it just seemed uh, like I wasn't getting anywhere. I was quite discouraged, and I just—it uh, just seemed like such a impossible thing for me to ever master. Not being much of a scholar or a academic, just kind of using these atrophied uh, um, mental faculties, uh, trying to get them to do something they never, they never did in my youth when I was in school or anywhere <laughs> in my middle years and then now I'm trying to get them to to um, 
to do what I want, but um, but something in me just kind of kept me bringing me back to it, and I just was diligent and and just kept pecking away at this thing, um, and then over time, you know, just gradually learning more and more. Um, but it, it really just seemed like a almost like a impossible task. I would you know kind of meet other bhikkhus who had learned the Padimokha and they would there was one monk in Thailand I asked him how long did it take you and he goes oh I think it was around three months I'm like oh that, <laughs> that's quite impressive and he kind of seemed like he knew it forward and backwards and uh, and here I was uh, you know I think I was just starting to get my Parajikas down the f- first rules it took me probably like three months just to get three rules three or four rules down and so I, did, I was under this constant um, feeling I was putting on myself of doubt, and I'm just not good enough, not smart enough, don't have the faculties to do this kind of thing. It, it just seemed like um, like if you were to compare, uh, you know, getting into comparing, you know, like what other people had and what I had, it would be like if you're... Um, you you know your mind was like a dump truck that you could just pour in all this information and just back it up to your mental faculties and dump it in and uh, uh, that would be maybe uh, you know the gifted person whereas I was more like the person uh, a person who had like a 1968 Volkswagen bug and I was trying to uh, fill up little buckets of information and just driving back and forth and pouring it into a leaky a, a leaky receptacle, and uh, almost as fast as I'm putting information in, it seems like it's falling out. Um, but um, but I, I just persevere. That's the, I think the one thing I had going for me was just perseverance. And um, well, but over time, though, what I um, started to find was I started to actually notice like how my mind learn things that was you know the things that typically people would learn in all the way back in elementary school or something you know but I was too busy looking out the window maybe or something but um, um, yeah eventually just learning how my mind works and the best ways to uh, uh, the best ways to uh, approach this uh, memorization project I took on and uh, eventually it started getting a little bit easier and at one point uh, I think I was out at Daldum at that point, and I had a lot of time on my hands to practice, and I made it to the point of, um, there's a particular rule, it's Nasagiya uh, Pichitiya 10, which is, I think, the longest rule, and somehow or another, I, I memorized it, and it, you know, kind of felt like, you know, when I started, there was, there's like, no way I'm going to be able to remember this, um, it's like trying to swim across the ocean. Um, but it happened. I yeah, I was able to do it, and then it at that point it, it started feeling like well maybe maybe I can do this maybe maybe it's possible. And uh, things began to get easier, and um, just over uh, it seemed like the the, the second half of the Padimoga became easier for me to learn, and uh, uh, my brain started getting. Um, more accustomed to this kind of work and exercising it, and it became a little bit more proficient. And 
and I had a lot of help along the way. Uh, at coaching, Ajahn Krishnadamu helped me so much, and uh, and others along the way. And uh, um, you know, and this is something really, you know, for most people, I get, you know, I, I think anybody who's been university or whatnot, who's had, had any kind of formal training and academics, it's not really that big of a deal. But for someone like me, it was. It really was kind of a big deal, and um, and you know, in, in in the end, I I, I was able to do it. Uh, whether I'll be able to do it again, I don't know, but uh, uh, I hope so. I keep trying to hang on to it, but um, yeah, there's all you know, just so much uh, that I learned that I didn't realize I was going to learn besides just memorizing these you know 227 rules and seven sections within, you know, introductions and closings and um, just a, kind of a, you know, the, the, you know, kind of maybe even more important things I just learned about uh, myself and, uh, and uh, you know, just about my own heart and, uh, and just lear- learning to be patient with myself, learning to, um, you know, um, just kind of trust, just trust in myself more and just learning to coach myself more and gaining confidence. And so, yeah, so through something like this, for me, it, it, kind, of, it kind of just spreads out into other areas where, uh, you know, something maybe seems like very unlikely that I could do or master or take on. And suddenly it, you know, becomes like, well, maybe it is, you know. You know, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can do these things. And, you know, quite a bit of the monastic training for me has been like that, you know, just, you know, finding out that you can, um, you know, you can sit up for vigils and not, not die, you know, die from lack of sleep and you can eat just one meal a day and uh, and uh, not starve to death and you can actually get fat even, even eating one meal a day. So, um yeah, there's been a just been a, a whole lot in this monastic life that uh, uh, over my short time being here that uh, I didn't expect coming coming in that have been uh, things that have been very beneficial for me uh, and as a, as an old guy too it's uh, it's um, yeah almost like a uh, just a. a a second chance to live a life differently after living uh, such a varied and uh life of uh, you know the the good the bad and the uh, beautiful and ugly of my life um as a layperson uh, to come here and uh, still have enough uh, gas in the tank and in uh, health to to do something to, to do this kind of a, a life and, uh, uh, and it's uh, yeah just a lot of good wholesome surprises <clears throat> and uh, you know and I uh, yeah just it, it gets me thinking about Lumpa and uh, you know I think about uh, all the you know I'm kind of I'm going to I'm going to be 63 this coming up this next next winter here and uh I think about all the twists and turns of my lay life and uh, um, all the different things I was doing since I was a adult back in 
1979 and going out on my own and all the good things and crazy things I've done. And uh, and then I think of Lumpa uh, ordaining when he did, what, back in the mid-'70s. And, and I think about, you know, you know, like some crazy time in my life, very unskillful time. And then I think about what Lumpa was doing. Oh, Lumpa was a monk. He was... <laughs> I think about something else I did, and you know, like through the eighties, oh, Lumpa was a monk. Through the nineties, oh, Lumpa, he was a monk. Through the <laughs> through the passing of the millennia, yeah, Lumpa was a monk. And uh, you know, all the different um, incarnations of a, of a life uh, that I've had, and then just the consistency that he had through uh, his life is uh, it's just a uh, um, mind blowing um, that someone you know can have that level of commitment and uh, it's like 50 years now it's just amazing that uh, he's been a monk longer than a lot of people in this room have even been alive and through uh, yeah it's just it's just such a marvel it's such a such a precious thing and um uh, just have so much appreciation in, the, in this whole opportunity for me being here is, uh, you know, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened without him. And um, so, yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of gratitude to Lampan and Tanjan uh, Amaro and the others um, for making all this possible, having this opportunity here in the West for us to, uh, come and train and, and um, yeah I think that's all I really got for this evening thanks and the next speaker will be Tan Jyoti Manto Amadhasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambudhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami <coughs> So one, a topic that's been on my mind lately has been the theme of metta which is this quality of unlimited, unconditional goodwill for all beings. And uh, it's a very important part of our practice. It manifests in many dimensions of the Buddha's teachings. What's been standing out for me as I've contemplated it is just how often it's given parallel treatment to the jhanas, throughout the Pali Canon. And that's certainly one of the 11 benefits of loving kindness or goodwill that the Buddha mentions, is that one who really develops this theme, consolidates it, makes much of it, uh, really undertakes it sincerely and thoroughly, one attains concentration easily. And... Throughout the Metta Sutta, we 
can see this theme manifesting to some degree. Uh, the sutta discusses being free from sense desire, being free from hatred and ill will, being free from drowsiness, discusses being peaceful and calm, having clarity of vision. And so essentially one of the things that this sutta is doing is it's uh, mapping the application of this theme to the five hindrances, which are the qualities of mind that are said to weaken discernment and keep one out of uh, this state of samadhi, which is tantamount to what's called the Brahma-like mind. And so when we cultivate this state of metta, what we're doing is we're cultivating an exalted state of mind that's tantamount to something very divine and blissful, which is why it's called a Brahma-vihara, or a dwelling of the gods. And so I would just like to offer some reflections on how this theme of metta can apply to the five hindrances and be used as a a multi-tool of sorts. In regards to this topic of cultivating the Brahma-like mind, um, a sutta that stands out for me is one called the Aganya Sutta, which is a mythologized account of the Buddhist cosmology in terms of how um, when the universe is when it has dissolved and it's just coming into a state of regeneration, beings for the most part dwell in these Brahma realms and they they subsist in a very uh, kind of pure and unadulterated state. But one, uh, one, one thing that happens is that they start to develop sensual desire, which is the first of the uh, five hindrances. And in one of the most striking parts of the sutta, uh, as the Brahmas are gradually descending into more more human forms and sort of losing their purity as they uh, give themselves over more and more to sensual desire, um, one thing that happens in their devolution is they split off into separate genders. And when this happens some of them begin having intercourse with each other. And the Brahma beings who are still relatively pure, they see this happening and they think to themselves, how can one being do that to another? And I think this is a really telling part of the sutta in that this is not the mind of a human being that we're trying to cultivate. We're trying to cultivate the mind of a truly exalted state of being. It's, it's a, this goodwill that we're developing. It's not, it's not preoccupied with any kind of objectification or exploitation or degradation of other beings in a way that would selfishly try to regard others as being an object for our own gratification. But it it selflessly considers the importance of other beings' desire for an independent happiness, and it's willing to make that into a priority. And it's not simply the case that uh, this aspect of sensuality is all that's addressed by 
goodwill, but in general, in the realm of sensuality, we're usually dealing, for example, with um, the problem of scarcity of resources. And so when we begin to consider the welfare of other beings, we, uh, we, we naturally incline towards renunciation as we, we realize that by, by taking less for ourselves, we naturally give more to others. And so we, quali- we, we cultivate this quality of being unburdensome by learning to renounce sensuality and finer and finer levels. And as we do this, there's a natural joy that begins to manifest in the heart as we uh, consider the well-being and happiness of others, as we learn to renounce sensual pleasures and learn to give more. And this joy acts as something that I think of as like a, uh, a clean burning fuel source. Sensuality has a certain kind of brightness and rapture to it. It's what the Buddha calls the rapture of the flesh. But if you compare it to something like a fire, it's sort of like a, like a, uh, a fire that subsists on crude coal or something like that. It has a warmth and a light to it, but it also produces a lot of smog that blinds and suffocates one. Whereas this, the joy that comes up when we cultivate this quality of considering other, other people's well-being, it's sort of like a clean, burning energy source that's stable and potent and something that we can really rely on. And it helps to wean us off of sensuality. The second hindrance is ill will. And I think it's, I think one helpful way of contemplating ill will is the desire to control other beings' happiness. And this is usually uh, motivated by some subterranean logic and concomitant indignation that wants to meet out happiness to other beings according to our arbitrary criteria. But it's worth considering that intent, that uh, metta or goodwill principally is an intention. It's intent based on non-ill will, intent based on harmlessness. This is a large part of how the Buddha defines right intention. And it's important to note that right intention is underlied by right view. So in order to give rise to this, this, intent, this intent based on non-ill will and this intent based on harmlessness, this quality of goodwill, we have to clarify our views around it and ask, what does it really mean to wish another being happiness? And what part of the function of right view is that it considers this law of kama, that all beings are the owners of their actions, heir to their actions, born of their actions, related to their actions, abide supported by their actions. And so what that means is that beings gain true happiness by acting on the causes of 
goodness and nobility. And so when we wish other beings happiness, this is ultimately what we're doing, is we're wishing for them to give up the causes of suffering, which are greed, hatred, and delusion, and to cultivate the qualities of goodness and nobility and to ultimately live up to their fullest potentials as a human being, which is a wish that we can have for anyone. And when we think in these terms, it helps to uproot some of the subterranean logic and indignation that would seem to justify withholding happiness and well-being from others. And so this aspect of right view is paramount to the development of goodwill and the removal of ill will. The third hindrance is an interesting one. The Pali is Tina Mida, which uh, the Buddha says can meaningfully be separated into two terms. Generally, what the third hindrance refers to is a deficit of energy, but the Buddha says that there is Tina and there is Mita. And generally, the first Tina connotes a sense of deficit of energy in the mind. Whereas the second term, Mita, I think the literal Pali is something like a pillar. And in this case, the pillar connotes something that is firmly entrenched in the ground and therefore stuck in place. It has insufficient movement or activity. And it's also a very physical image. So it connotes insufficient energy in the body. And so some translations are things like sloth and torpor, lethargy and drowsiness, dullness and drowsiness. Personally, I like lethargy for Tina, and I like drowsiness for Mita. As far as the deficit of energy in the mind is concerned, what I think of as lethargy, it pays to consider the fact that Every action we undertake on some level is done with the intent to obtain happiness. And so if that's the case, then we want to make sure that we're undertaking that enterprise well, that we're doing it skillfully, and that we're doing it effectively, and that we're really giving our heart to it. So it doesn't really pay to be lethargic to our own happiness, but to really strive to put in as many causes of goodness and nobility as we can into our practice. And it doesn't pay to be lethargic to other people's well-being either. Because personally, I'd like to live in a world where people do reach their fullest potentials, where they They do have beautiful conduct, and they are wise and intelligent and virtuous and inspiring, generous and kind and selfless. And if there's any way that we can support other beings in that endeavor, then that helps not only them, but it helps us, because it helps to manifest a beautiful world for ourselves. So it's helpful to think in these ways or whatever ways help to 
undermine this sense of lethargy towards practice. And as we begin to think in these ways, we can start to engage the discursive quality of mind and put this meditation theme into practice by calling up inspiring images or phrases that would evoke this quality of well-wishing, goodwill, loving-kindness. And this discursive quality of mind has a natural energizing effect. In general, the Buddha said that there are seven awakening factors, mindfulness, investigation of qualities, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Numbers two through four of these, investigation of qualities, energy, and rapture, these are said to be the energizing qualities. So when the third hindrance is active, these are what we want to cultivate. And when we call to mind these phrases and images, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering, or whatever works for you, there's lots of room for experimentation and even artistry, I would dare to say. Um, this engages the second awakening factor on some level, which can be thought of as the wisdom or the, the discursive or the contemplative or even the critical faculty of mind in regards to the awakening factors. This naturally produces a degree of energy and effort that has as its result rapture or joy. And this energizes the mind. And as the mind becomes energized, it typically tends to wake up the body as well and remove this, this hindrance of mita or drowsiness. But we want our energy to be in balance. We don't want to have too much energy because that's the fourth hindrance, which is translated, or the Pali of which is Udacha Kukacha. And like the third hindrance, this can be meaningfully separated into two terms, Udacha and Kukacha. Udacha connotes the excess of energy in the body, and so it's oftentimes translated as restlessness. Whereas kukacha, the Pali of which literally means something like bad doneness and so, or wrongdoing. And so it's translated often as something like remorse. It can also be rendered as anxiety. Um, it can refer to things like guilt, unwise fear, unwise agitation. And it generally has a sense of self-flagellation to it. And it's important to note that this tendency to criticize ourselves and to kind of loop regrets in our mind over and over again about bad things we've done, ways we could have been more skillful, this is a hindrance. And it's not to be cultivated. It weakens you. It obstructs your clarity, and it's not to be indulged or made much of. And so when we can use a variant of this theme of metta called compassion or karuna to really 
sympathize with ourselves and to some extent let us off the hook for mistakes that we've made. Not that we want to condone bad behavior, but at the same time we realize that on some level we're trying to, we're trying our best to find a happiness that is really reliable and noble. And it's only natural that there are going to be mistakes along the way. And we try to remedy those mistakes as best we can. And so when we can learn to have a bit of gentle levity in regards to ourselves, we can put the mind at ease and stop torturing ourselves with these restless kinds of regrets. And as we put the mind at ease in this way, the body tends to follow suit and things tend to become calm. And this is where we begin to shade into the fifth awakening factor, which is Posada. And that's usually translated as tranquility. And this can refer to either tranquility of mind or tranquility of body, but for the most part, throughout the canon, the Buddha describes this in the context of tranquility of body. And he goes on to say that when the body is tranquil, the mind is easily concentrated. And so this begins to shade into the awakening factors of concentration and equanimity, factors six and seven. And these last three qualities, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, the Buddha says that these are the calming factors of uh, these, these awakening factors. And so we want to bring our energy into balance by using this theme of boundless goodwill to think in these ways and to provide some stability and um, and uh, restfulness and ease in the body. And this inclines the mind towards concentration. But we don't... Re- but we need to also give up this hindrance of doubt. And the way that doubt is defined in the terms of the hindrances is it's doubt about what's skillful and unskillful. And so we tend to get flashes of this sense of boundless goodwill as we work with it. And once we get our foot in the door, so to speak, doubts about what's skillful and unskillful tend to melt away. This is actually one thing that uh, the Buddha tells the, the Kalamas and the Kalama Sutta when they're having doubts about the various teachings they're receiving from all the the spiritual gurus of India, and they don't know whose doctrine to believe. And the Buddha says at one point that when, when you've cultivated this quality of goodwill, you'll know for yourself that this is skillful, and you won't need anyone to confirm it for you. And so we want to learn how to trust that feeling and really give ourselves to it. It's interesting to note that in the 11 benefits of loving kindness, one of the one of the items that I find most interesting in that list is that for one who really undertakes this practice thoroughly, one dies unconfused. One dies unconfused. 
And for me, that stands out as being quite a potent reflection. And I think that the reason that is is because there's a radical simplicity to this quality of boundless goodwill, unconditional goodwill, precisely because it doesn't place conditions and stipulations on who will be happy and who will not. We're wishing for a happiness that everyone can have and that is boundless. And that's a very simple sort of wish. The the moment we start saying, may you be happy if, that adds a complication. And complications are confusing. So we simplify this line of thinking by saying simply, may you be happy. And as we begin to simplify the mind in this way, simplify the emotional structure in this way, our doubts are removed. And we can more fully incline towards this quality of uh, well-wishing, loving-kindness, goodwill. And this is how we cultivate the Brahma-like mind through the removal of these five hindrances. And it's not simply the case that this is only used for developing concentration, but it's also a tool for insight. I'll close by mentioning a sutta that I find very interesting. It's in the Book of the Elevens, and the elevenfold scheme refers to the four jhanas, the four brahma-viharas, and the first three formless states. And the structure of the sutta is very simple. It's a stock phrase that applies to each of these 11 items, more or less. And basically what the sutta is saying is that for any of these states of mind, when you're cultivating them as a state of concentration, you can actually contemplate the conditions that are supporting that state of mind, and you can learn to let go of the volitional structures that are propping it up. And this insight can be enough to break through even to arahantship. So right there, you have the Buddha saying that this theme of metta can be enough to break through to full enlightenment, to say nothing of the lesser states. And so I think this is a quality that's really worth investing in. It's usually thought of as being a, an antidote to ill will, and it is, but I think it's helpful to view it as something of a multi-tool, something like a Swiss army knife or a leatherman that can have many purposes and applications depending on how we use it. Just like with a hammer, if you use it one way, you can hammer a nail down. But if you turn it around, you can pry a nail up. And so I just want to give everyone encouragement to really explore this this theme of contemplation and try to utilize and consider all of its different potentials and manifest those potentials by acts of body, speech, and mind. So, leave that for reflection.
Ajahn Suhajo be the next talk. Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Maybe just to <coughs> share some thoughts, uh, both I've been spinning around since Ajahn Kurundamo's talk uh, last night, and also Tom Jyotimanto uh, touched on some very similar themes. It's kind of, <clears throat> some sense, unity of, um, say, like the wisdom practices in the Brahma Viharas. Um, and it's something that's very close to my heart as well, because I've kind of, yeah, I'm a very intellectual type, a uh, very heady person, but um, the Brahma Viharas are a very, you know, it's a very heart quality. Um, and uh, so, yeah, making the, you know, seeing that the two are, uh, they can be made to work together has been an important part of my practice. And, uh, yeah, one thing that, uh, struck me about uh, something from Ajahn Kurnadamo's talk was um, I was thinking about how for lack of a better word how in, incredibly personal um, wisdom panya discernment um, is um, in its in its true form uh there's kind of a, a bit of a, a turn of phrase or a, a kind of a um, almost like a pun I've heard some Thai Ajans use when somebody's overthinking something or, or if they have uh, you know an intellectual understanding and they'll say something like oh that's sanya that's not banya and so it's something like uh, that's just kind of it's just memory or it's just something, you know, kind of something you've learned or memorized, but it hasn't become banya yet. And so it's, you know, it's easy to read uh, lots of different teachings or see how they all, different teachings connect together in very beautiful ways. And that's a very important part of the practice. But if we don't make it very immediate and very personal, uh, in, personal not in the sense of like, you know, woe is me or... Um, objectifying ourself or other people, um, but just in terms of being able to relate the teachings to our own direct experience, I think that's a crucial aspect of this banya, this this discernment. It's you know the ability to make decisions in our life uh, for the wholesome, for long term sustainable happiness, and that does involve a bit of understanding, a little bit of academic, you know, understanding the terms or the structures of of Dhamma. But it really involves um, having a clear awareness of how our own mind works in terms of those teachings. So this this Dhamma-vichya factor of the the seven factors of awakening, uh, another example of a similar quality is the fourth Satipatthana, uh, this contemplation of, of dhammas. 
and there's kind of a you know a question well what's the buddha meaning when he says contemplation or investigation of dhammas dhamma is just an incredibly vast concept or a word or it has so many different meanings and uh well is it the teachings themselves or is it you know these phenomena that arise in our experience and in fact when the buddha explains these this factor these factors of dhammavicca or dhammanupassana he explains it in both ways he says you know sort of it's knowing and contemplating the teachings but it's also knowing and contemplating these patterns of mind or these qualities of mind that arise and cease in our experience which one is it it's both it's simply being able to to look at our experience in terms of the dhamma teachings but that takes and you know for myself it's taken a lot more effort focused in on this very intimate or very direct um kind of dimension of of panya it sort of it's you know for me it's been e- relatively easy to come up with conceptual maps or to get definitions of words and nail down concepts but then to get the actual feeling the feeling tone for those things um what karuna actually feels like what metta actually feels like what sukha actually feels like what dukkha actually feels like and then the terms that i read in the suttas or in the the maps of the teachings um they take on a very 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 personal dimension personal in the sense again of something that's immediate that i can feel i can feel it in my gut i can feel it in my body and uh being able to sort of draw the connections between these terms and the patterns that we read in the suttas when this leads to this leads to this and you can look back on your own life and your own mind and your own your own choices and see those dynamics those those cause and effect you know seeing that at work and being able to steer the process and uh for me that's been a, a crucial kind of development that's been the you know, a difficult but fruitful um way of of cultivating I'll just leave that for reflection this evening thank you next will be Samadara Himako Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Udang dhammang sanghang namasami I just finished uh two week retreat and uh I wasn't looking forward to it ending but it's actually really nice to see everybody and I was thinking I uh would focus on things that we all have in common just kind of uh it's been different things that have been bouncing around in my head and I thought I'd relate some of those cuz they feel quite positive and also true 
nice to reflect on. The, the first one that's coming to mind is I heard a Dhamma talk by uh, Tai Ajahn, and it opened with, um, I think it was like, greetings or good evening, uh, brothers and sisters in old age, old age, sickness, and death. And when I first heard it, I thought it was uh, like almost kind of like a dark humor. But as I've thought about it more, as It was revealing to me that uh, when I think about death a bit more frequently and kind of give time to death contemplation, it's actually a really like an intimate connection to everybody. And uh, just that we have these bodies and they started breathing one day and um, how they're going to stop breathing and there's nothing that anybody has to do, they'll just stop breathing all by themselves. And uh, my grandmother used to say, we're all just passing through. That's another thing we have in common. We're all at a Bayagiri, and we're all passing through a Bayagiri. And uh, the community here, everybody's dedicated to telling the truth, which is... uh, something that I think is incredibly rare, especially in American culture, where there's there's whole movies where the main character's in a kerfuffle because they got themselves, and they're, they're lying about something, and they're kind of this relatable person, and it just seemed like a normal thing. But to be surrounded by people who are really trying to tell the truth, I think is actually uh, really amazing. We all enjoy loving kindness. Tanjoti Manto's reflection reflections were quite nice. I was walking on the path today, and it occurred to me that um, pretty much, I think every time I find some behavior in somebody else irritating, they also find something in me irritating, and. Um, how we all have this experience of wanting to feel loving-kindness and be warm, but we also have an experience of feeling irritation. And uh, how we also share that with pretty pretty much everybody. But... When things get pretty calm and clear, there isn't the irritation there anymore. It's whatever that thing was, pretty much is like a crinkled leaf or something that just blows away and super light and insignificant. That's another thing my grandmother used to do was if somebody was complaining about something, she would point out uh, death to them and then have the comparison of um, basically not letting things that 
are small, basically hold you down. Yeah, I haven't been speaking very much for a couple of weeks. There's a lot more people here than there are in my kuti. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll close by sharing a thought experiment that I do from time to time that's uh, I found really useful. Is uh, Sometimes even sitting in meditation, there will be kind of like a flashback to a previous chapter in my life and a previous place and previous people that aren't around me anymore. Or uh, I remember when I was sitting once, I was walking up the stairs of an old apartment building in Boston that was you know, 100 years old, and I could see the, uh, the railings and the thick paint on them and feel the, uh, the carpeted stairs creaking under my feet and then going into this old apartment. And being with people who are now in different phases of their life, and I was thinking how it was basically be like some kind of a miracle to be able to go back and actually be there and kind of just spend a day in a part of our lives that's now impossible to return to, and how vivid that experience would be and how much we would appreciate the people that are that were that would be around us and maybe being in a younger body or um, culture would be different before some sort of event that changed things irreversibly and how we would really relish and be in the present moment if we were to go back to that and Connecting it with death contemplation, sometimes I'll think about, you know, being as uh, some ajans have had guided meditations of being old, being on a deathbed, and um, looking back. And the thought experiment is to basically imagine that you're in the future, and the time that you're looking back on is this situation, this chapter in our lives that we can't stay in. Um, being at a Bayagiri at this age with the people that are around us, um, all the people in this room to continue the death contemplation, like one of us will be the last one alive. And chances are it won't be uh, you or me. (laughs) And by that time, we'll likely all have scattered around, you know, But the thought experiment is to see this situation with the clarity of hindsight and just valuing this situation with that same sort of gut understanding of the circumstances and how important they are and the simple things and the people around us and the abilities that we have to walk and speak and we have food we're not at war. And the nice thing about that thought experiment is to be able to go back into that time and have that clarity would be, it's basically against the laws of nature. It would be a miracle. 
But if you imagine yourself in the future, being back at a Bayagiri 2023 in a day, then boom, wish granted, and you're here. And uh, you can kind of, I find it useful to cut through thinking too much about the future or the past and kind of relish the cork floor or that I can sit on a cushion and be all right. I leave that for reflection. Anagarka Max. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Dhamam Sangam Namasami So I'm very happy to be here tonight listening to wonderful reflections surrounded by friends, new and old. And I'm, in, I'm inspired by people deciding to spend their Sunday night endeavoring to do something beneficial for themselves and others. And I've been reflecting a lot on how I create suffering for myself, which is actually a a radical idea in regular society, that it's not some other person outside making me suffer. No, I'm creating the suffering for myself. So I've been playing around with taking ownership over that and seeing how, how I do that and then how I can potentially stop doing that, which is another radical idea. Maybe I can stop making suffering for myself. Maybe I can produce well-being for myself. And I was writing down these reflections, and I got up to about 52, 52 ways I created suffering for myself. And I decided to take a break there. It's... (laughs) Stick with that. And um, there's this there's this retreat that I I really like from Ajahn Sona that I've listened to again and again and again. It's on right effort, and one of the one of the talks in this retreat, he talks about appropriate attention. And Appropriate attention plays into how I create suffering for myself or how I don't create suffering for myself, how we as humans engage in this process. And appropriate attention is about viewing things or interpreting things in such a way as to create wholesome mind states or prevent unwholesome, unhelpful mind states. So the way we talk to ourselves will determine whether the events we experience uh, 
create stress and suffering or inner well-being. So to illustrate this idea of appropriate attention, there's this anecdote I have. When I was at a different monastery a while back, I got obsessed with peanut butter. And there was a very small amount of peanut butter being, well, by my standard, very small amount of peanut butter being put out. And uh, there was a lot of solitude when I was at this monastery, and my mind just really got centered on this peanut butter issue, and it, it drove me nuts. And one of the ways I realized I create suffering for myself is by getting really, really angry and agitated about little things that aren't really that meaningful or important. So some things I might have been saying to myself at the time were, this is ridiculous. This is, this is not thoughtful or considerate. By the time the peanut butter gets to me, I'm barely getting any. Like, what's, what's the deal here? This is, not, this is not fair or right or whatever. And that doesn't feel good internally. So this is an unpleasant feeling I'm creating for myself, this aversion. And what helped me get out of that was to think of the absurdity of it. So then I started thinking, yeah, well, if, if I had this peanut butter, would I, I'd finally be happy. I'd never, never suffer again. Like, everything would be okay if I had this peanut butter. That would be it. There would be nothing else to do. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be fine, right? Of course, the more I thought about that, I was made me realize, well, obviously not. So the peanut butter is a lie. The promise of the peanut butter that I'll find that I'll be okay or be happy when I get this thing that's external. Um, there's nothing there. Like I could en- I can enjoy it if I have it. I could appreciate it, but to think that my happiness will come from that that that's not really true. So that would be appropriate attention, which could lead to greater well-being, equanimity. Okay, well, this is something I don't really have control over, but it's okay. I don't I don't need this. Which would bring me back to investigating how I could find well-being and happiness internally by cultivating a sense of calm and focus in my own mind and body and then investigating the processes in my own mind to see how I create suffering for myself and how I could potentially stop doing that thing, which is go, go to the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. As far, as far as I understand it, there's suffering, this suffering that we experience as humans. And the cause of this suffering, we crave things, we, we hate things, but there's also the third noble truth is freedom from the suffering. Just figuring out strategic, wise ways of untangling factors into appropriate attention. Looking at things in a wiser way. And then the Buddha's Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth, the, the step-by-step process of how to get out of that cycle.
So, again, just want to express my gratitude to everyone here, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Okay, who's going to be next? Anagarka RJ. Motasa Baruato Arato Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Baruato Arato Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Baruato Arato Sama Sambutasa Bhutang Dhamman Sankang Namasami So uh, I'm coming up on the end of my Anagarka year. It's been eleven months. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when I first decided to go on to Weiss, I, I had the thought that, uh, you know, uh, willing to do anything except, uh, be kitchen manager. And, um, so I just, you know, I had this aversion around that for some reason. And, uh, Ajahn Chunda came up to me one day and said, uh, you know, how do you feel about being kitchen manager? Um, uh, my first thought was, you know, I think I've made a big mistake. Um, <laughs> um, but then I, I understood that I had this aversion, and so uh, I said, okay, you know, I'll do it, uh, because uh, that's what I came here for, to... Uh, sort of challenge myself and um, so you know I was sort of at a mental crossroads like uh, either I can be miserable for the next eight to nine months uh, having to do something I don't really want to do or uh, I can mm, you know do it to the best of my ability and um, and uh, so I chose not to be miserable and uh, you know sometimes I I hear people refer to the kitchen as a biogary hell realm and uh, and when I hear this I think you know well that's not the only one. There's also uh, the pantry. Um, there's the dining hall. Um, my cutie. Uh, the bathroom. The Prius. Uh, and, um, but actually, that's not right. Uh, there's there is no Abayaguri hell realm. It's it's just the untrained mind, you know. It's uh, it's a greed, hatred, delusion, uh, aversion, clinging, and um, so you know you, you get a you do this every day. You get a good look at all of those things and. Um, like Max was saying, you're really kind of just creating your own suffering. Uh, you know, 
all of these places right now are completely still and quiet, so it can't be the kitchen or my cootie. It's just me. Um, and I don't know if, uh, you know, it's if it's just this tradition or this lineage, but uh, it seems like uh, living, like the monastic life is sort of designed to, uh, you know, force you to confront all of these things, um, basically at every turn, because like out in the world, you, when, you, when these things come up, you can just, um, you know, we have a million ways to distract ourselves and not, not actually have to do any work. So, uh, you know, when we're here, we don't, we don't have all of these distractions, so we really don't have any, any choice usually. And uh, yeah, so, you know, we're just here doing, doing these things every single day. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just very grateful that, uh, that a place like this even exists. Um, to have the kind of space to to do this and um, uh, sort of practice in this way and so you know when when things are are tough and uh, you spill the juice all over the kitchen at the last minute or the table collapses and you lose all the food uh, or whatever it is. Um, it, it is good to just remember that this, you know, this is, uh, this is why we're here to, to um, try to work with these things and figure out, you know, what can we do to, um, not not create as much suffering as we do for ourselves. So I'll just leave it there. Todd Chittapalo. Namo tassa bhaguvato arahato samha sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami So I'm also just coming off a retreat, two weeks. Two-week retreat that all of the residents here get during the Vasa time. I thought I'd share maybe one or two reflections. And uh, one of them just kind of germated earlier today while uh, I was standing over by the nun's, uh, nun's uh, restroom or uh, bathroom kind of waiting 
during the uh, meal in Amodana while that was happening over here, just waiting outside there with my bowl, kind of standing near near with uh, Summoner Himako. <clears throat> and uh, just kind of looking off to the side, and I noticed there was a woodpecker that was kind of on the ground and poking around, kind of tossing leaves to the side, and kind of caught my eye because it's uh, not so common to see woodpeckers on the ground. They're always flying around, doing various things. And then I saw that uh, he picked up an acorn, so I thought, oh yeah, of course. It's an acorn woodpecker, he's looking for acorns. And then I followed, followed him through the air as he took off, and he landed on this, uh, on top of the buildings, there's this kind of strange-looking structure. It's basically a giant, uh, looks like a giant birdhouse. There's a, you know, it's kind of rectangular. It has multiple kind of entry points, holes in it. One of them is just a curved PVC pipe. But it, yeah, it's kind of strange looking, and if you kind of see, if, it, if you if you've noticed it, it kind of blends in somewhat. But you can notice it from certain, um, yeah, certain certain angles. And uh, so what the woodpecker did was just flew up to this one of these holes and just uh, dropped his acorn down right in there. And my first thought was, oh, cool, that thing's actually working. And it was something that Ajahn Kaspo had built a number of years ago now to help with the woodpecker problem because what the woodpecker, acorn woodpeckers love to do is they find an acorn, which we have tons of, especially this time of year, and they try to find holes to stuff them into, and they'll keep keep stuffing in acorns until basically that hole fills up until there's no longer a hole, and then they'll find a new hole or make a new hole somewhere pecking the building and uh, so the kind of the genius behind this uh, this thing that Ajahn Kaspo built was it's just uh, inside it's just empty there's just a like a five gallon bucket and so every now and then somebody can go up and remove the bucket dump out the acorns preferably somewhere away from the buildings where the woodpeckers won't find it but uh, so I noticed uh, within just seconds of this first woodpecker flying away, there was uh, two others that just kind of swooped in from different directions, and they dropped off their own their own acorns into that same hole. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But then uh, the third uh, third woodpecker, it uh, it looked down, and I guess it realized what must have been just there was a, a small a small pile of acorns kind of sitting right at the base of it. And so it would just hop down onto the roof, grab an acorn, go back up to the hole, drop it in, look down again, grab another acorn, go back up, put it back in the hole. And I didn't have enough time to go and check this out before the uh, puja this evening, but my guess is that that bucket's probably overflowing. And so what's happening is, or the bucket's just not lined up, but maybe it's overflowing, and so the acorns are just basically piling out of the, you know, falling out of the bucket and then landing uh, at the bottom. And it seemed like there was a bit of a gap, so they're just kind of rolling 
rolling back out. And uh, I was kind of amused by just watching these woodpeckers. And it, it made me think of uh, two qualities that we, that the Ajans talk about are, that are important for meditation, which is vitaka vichara, thought and examination. So in, in a way, these woodpeckers, they're, you know, they're accomplishing their task actually quite successfully. And I imagine, at least from my perspective, that every time a woodpecker like drops an acorn into this hole, he probably gets a bit of like a like an like an endorphin hit, like he just like, you know he just succeeded, you know his mission mission accomplished, find another acorn, put new acorn into hole, <coughs> repeat. But the uh, it seems like they have just a one track mind; they're not able to actually see the results of what they're doing. So not only do they never, you know, because of the system, they'll never reap actually the, the fruit or the acorns that, you know, they're, they're trying to storing away. So not only that, but they don't even realize that, you know, they put in acorns and then they just immediately kind of fall right back out. So they just keep one after another, just at least this, this one particular woodpecker was just going back down, grabbing an acorn, putting it back in. Observing uh, the wildlife here is one of the, one of the th- kind of one of my hobbies and one of the things that I've come to really appreciate living here. Well, I don't know if that's a good place to leave it, but I think I'll just leave it there. The next Dhamma talk is Anagarka Art. Namo tassa bhagavato. Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Budham Dhammam Sangham Namasami So today is the Pavarana day. It's uh, my first uh, first time being here for one, and um, yeah, I guess it marks the end of the rains retreat, uh, and um, I've been kind of reflecting, hearing this word pavarana a lot uh, this last week. First time I encountered it, I believe, was in the uh, Anapanasati Sutta, which uh, begins with... um, Yeah, the assembly of, <laughs> of bhikkhus and uh, the end of the rains retreat, the Pavarana ceremony on the full moon. And um, the, when I first uh, encountered the sutta, I was very, uh, very joyful uh, because it was uh, some very nice instructions on, you know, what, what I should be doing. Or, or uh, almost like meditation instructions. Later on, I learned it was much more, uh, yeah, a lot more to it. But in the beginning, it's very, uh, very good. And so when I read the sutta, um, yeah, I kind of made a recording of it. And so certain parts of it have been kind of replaying in my mind today. 
and one of them and I, one of them is uh just kind of the imagery of that day um there's a line uh the lord buddha was sitting out in the open air and um you know i can just imagine um the buddha sitting there just like with this kind of expression very serene and he says you know you've been practicing very well during this rains retreat and uh, what you have not yet realized you can realize perfectly and uh i'm going to extend this rains retreat by one month uh because yeah just keep on keep on going and when uh everybody found out they were you know delighted and all the bhikkhus in the surrounding regions started uh, converging and um yeah they had another month of retreat and at the end of that month is when he gave the the 16 step instruction um and i won't actually be talking about the 16 step instruction since uh we chanted a lot but what's been coming up for me today is this uh recollection of the buddha um this uh, buddha buddha nusati or maybe that's right um and recently bhikkhu bodhi was uh in this area and he gave this um a wonderful retreat i got to i got to uh listen to it afterwards but um one of the themes that he um introduced us to was re- uh, recollection of the buddha and he goes through the 10 attributes that we chant every morning and he his instruction is kind of to um kind of mold them over just kind of repeat them and see what kind of imagery they bring up and uh imagery or association or whatever feeling uh yeah it's and it's all kind of very wholesome wholesome things that it brings up um and so it starts with uh, araham um the arahant samma sambuddho the perfectly enlightened one vijacharana sampano he is impeccable in conduct and understanding sugato well gone or the accomplished one loka we do the knower of the worlds anutaro anutaro is uh, unexcelled purisadamma sarati an excelled trainer or tamer of uh people to be trained satta teacher deva manusam of gods and humans buddho he is awake bhagavan the blessed one and 
in the Bhikkhu Bodhi's instruction, you go through these many times and you find the, a couple that work best for you. And I really like the first two and, uh, well, first three, the last two. Um, but just Araham, Samma, Sambudo, just letting that letting the mind take the shape of uh, those epithets. And um, I got a chance to attend uh, Ajahn Kurnadamo's uh, uh, day-long retreat at Spirit Rock where he went through maybe a, as many as ten themes, uh, contemplations to settle the mind, almost like before uh, starting a meditation. Or it can be yeah, like maybe preliminary, or it can be, I suppose, I suppose, however, it might work for you. Um, but, yeah, so, kind of wanted to share this uh, recollection and imagery of the Buddha that's been coming up for me today. Um, and yeah, maybe give it a try if uh, some of your methods are, uh, yeah. Tr- uh, I, I first encountered this from Bhikkhu Bodhi in an article he wrote where he said he's been practicing the breathing for a year or some years and he uh, opened the Vasudhi Maga and uh, tried it out and then he like really likes it. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll leave it there. Tandamawaro Namo tas bhagavato arahato samma sambutasa Namo tas bhagavato arahato samma sambutasa Namo tassa bhagavato varahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang dhammang sankham namasami Let's relax. We can invite relaxation through our breath and through our experience of the body. And being sensitive to our our process of relaxation, however that manifests for us, let's take a moment and give ourselves to that. The first time I ever seriously meditated, I was so eager, so interested in just, I remember my friend telling me about this 10-day retreat that we could do together, and wow, even still recalling it right now, just brings up this feeling of hope that I hadn't really experienced up until that point in my life. And I remember entering the retreat with just uh, 
so much earnest determination that whatever the instruction was, I, I was really going to do it wholeheartedly. And so when the instruction came to not react, um, I took it quite seriously. If there were pains in the body, I would, I'm not, no, no. Not going to buy into that. It would get to the point where I would start to gyrate, like literally gyrate, and just kind of like flail around to the point where um, the helpers on the course kind of had to like walk up to me slowly and kind of like tap me on the shoulder or be like, are you okay? Are you okay? And me just kind of like looking back at them like with this cold face, like, you know, I'm practicing here. (laughs) It's really not polite to touch me when I'm really practicing seriously, so... I remember many times not saying anything, too, which led to confusion and then looking at the the teacher and the teacher kind of, like, looking back a few times, like, just, you know, leave him alone. It's okay. (laughs) Um, I forget how many years this still went on. Not all the time, because I probably would have given up meditation at that point. But... Many courses I can still even remember. Just years later, these gyrating mornings. Oh. But I was quite relieved to look around the room tonight and not seeing anyone gyrating in their seats, which means that we do have the ability to tap into a relaxed state of being. and that we're here together to support each other in that. At the beginning of the retreat, I made two resolutions. One, don't complain. I wanted to experiment with something that was quite direct and something I could come up with and recall relatively easily. And, yeah, yeah, that was one. And the second one was seriously considering communication. And there was an opportunity for members in the community to formally study a communication process together. And as soon as I heard about it, There was a mixture of elation and trepidation at the same time. Elation that I knew that it was something that could be improved and that by doing it together with other people that the chances of it improving would be even greater. 
but also trepidation because well I found that out later because it actually forced me to look at how I do communicate with others but also with myself So maybe we can take a moment just to recall how we communicated that idea of relaxation to ourselves. Do we tell ourselves something or what actually happened? For myself, the more I gave attention to the quality of how I was contemplating and the quality of how I was sustaining attention that that was actually mixed with a lot of unclear messages about what my intentions were for actually sitting and meditating language around don'ts and shoulds were quite frequent. Don't buy into this. Don't follow that. Don't do that. I should be really diligent right now. I shouldn't be tired. Or... I should be interested in this right now. And noticing the the quality behind don'ts, shoulds, can'ts, anything that gives uh, somewhat of those messages that we don't actually have the ability to decide and choose what we can do. And using that language, I noticed for myself, brought about this guilt, shame, depression, and tension. Because whenever I told myself, don't do that, and then I did it, well what's the response going to be? So, maybe we can try something together. I should be mindful right now. What does that message tell us? How, do, how are you responding to that message? I have the opportunity to practice, to develop qualities that I've always wanted to develop. And now I've given myself the right conditions 
and the right setting to do this. So for myself, it was quite a fruitful experience. Learning that there... Fruitful in the sense of my ability to be honest with myself. Having more space to consider how to practice and to consider that the mind is a lot more malleable than what I gave myself credit for. I wish everyone well. And I'll leave it there. Next is Tano Basi. So happy Pavarna, everyone. I never know quite what to expect, but I've been delighting in the talks given so far. It amazes me that so many different beings of different temperaments, different strengths, different personalities, they can all give really useful and thoughtful reflections. Yeah, I find it quite inspiring that there's not one way to be a practitioner. You don't have to be an ideal meditator. Knowing all the suttas, meditating in all of your free time, eating one jujube fruit a day. You can just be normal. (laughs) That's okay. recognize the tendency in myself over my time of practice so far to really want to be something special, to want to be something exalted or different or unique. So, <laughs> it's taken a long time and it's still taking a lot of time, but it feels like every time I notice that tendency... It's like, ah, well, that's some extra pain that doesn't need to be there. And so on the flip side, instead of needing to be anything, I found it to be such a relief just to come back again and again and again and again to space, to stillness, that kind of background energy that's behind all of the things. So a a big part of what I've been working with recently in, in, in my practice has been seeing again and again all of these crazy voices that I'm not sure where they come from, but they come up again and they they want to go out and do something, they want to go out and make something, be something, create something and it's uh 
<laughs> they're like little puppy dogs. They just they're they're they're, they're kind of on a leash, and they, they really want to break free. They really want to run, and they they, they uh, it's also tiring. You have to have to hold the leash and rein them in all the time, and give them treats, and make sure they're well fed, and it just uh. I think I'm okay without having a dog. But what I've been humbled by is how much momentum these voices can have, how persuasive they can be, how sparkly they can be. It's like if you, uh, maybe if you follow this one, you could become a perfect person. But ah, what a, it's been such a relief to have let go of the leash. The puppies can go this way and that, they can explore, they can do their own thing, and I don't have to hold it with tension. So being this is a spontaneous analogy, forgive me if there are uh, holes or things don't make sense, but I'm been thinking that all of these doubting voices are they're running around and they're creating mischief and the only thing I found consistently that removes the sense of un unease, this sort of tension, this, this doubt that can arise is going back to simplicity, to meditation to being with and the more and more I try to create fancy solutions yeah the more the more the rope gets entangled it just gets more and more complicated and I've had so much gratitude for Lungpur Pasano as a teacher because he always guides back to simplicity, back to nurturing the roots. And again and again, it's given me faith that it doesn't have to be fancy. There can be a peace and calm in the simplicity. That being said, you know, uh, coming back to this kind of simple, spacious, sort of really basic feeling of just being with. It's amazing that we're able to come back to that and try to observe things clearly. And I've noticed it can be really helpful to cultivate a sense of curiosity around it that uh, the mind can get kind of dull if it stays there for a lengthy period of time and so really trying to figure out like what's what's actually going on here what can I see, what can I learn these are the kind of voices that I found can be really skillful to combat the sense of um, The, the, the drab feelings that can come with just, oh, I'm with again, I'm being with again here. Uh, oh, I'm with this moment again. Let's, let's keep, oh, there's another moment. We're just going to keep being with and... Uh, 
And then it's like there's this spark that you can that, that can be cultivated with impersonal curiosity. That makes it fun. And so I've been really delighting in sort of using this open space as a playground, trying to see what I can see. without getting pulled by all my frantic puppy dog voices too hard trying to stay in the space so yeah I just wanted to loop around and again express appreciation and inspiration at the community that I'm in uh, I'm just kind of blown away that there are beings that are living this way and practicing this way. And their reflections uniquely attest to that. And I feel honored to be among them. I'll leave it there for this evening. The final talk for this evening, Tan Sivako. Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Bodang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami a lot of good talks. I get to go last. Probably not my preference. I've been contemplating a lot about all things converging on feeling. Um, feelings just have such a powerful way of hijacking our experience and I mean, I can easily say, oh, feeling, feeling's not self. That's really easy to say, but, um, yeah, just having a feeling come up and it, it can be just so convincing, like, oh, yeah, this, you know, as we hear over and over, either making much of it with metta or, or uh, convincing ourselves, yeah, we need that peanut butter or something. It's just, or even for myself, just waiting to talk and being last. It's like, oh, is he going to say my name? Is he going to say, like, you know, the heart goes a little bit. Oh, no. And, uh, yeah, it's just, we, we have the six senses. We can't get rid of that. They're, uh, they're there, so we have contact, and with that contact, we have feelings. So this is, this is really something we live with. Uh, I think it's important to reflect on. And uh, having wisdom with that, um, we do pick things up. We do have contact. We'll, we put we pick things up, but just being able to pick it up and set it back down again, seeing what it is, um, you 
Yeah, finding the usefulness in it. Is it something to be made much of, or, or is this something just to, to know and let go? Yeah, just keep going back to that. Because we can we can read the books and and find things that are very sensible and oh yeah that makes sense to me and but uh, putting the book down just putting the book down and closing it and really looking at these feeling tones and and that contact. Apparent here and now, inviting one to come and see. It's interesting because wisdom, wisdom is a perception, but wisdom can also be eclipsed by perception. So we can we can have this feeling tone and perceive it as self and I like this, I don't like this, I need to get away from this, maybe I want more of this and right there we've lost wisdom. We're, uh, we're, caught, we're caught in a, a whirlwind there. The first sutta in the Smita Nikaya uh, Deva comes down and asks the Buddha, how did you cross the flood? And he says, well, I crossed the flood by not pushing forward and not standing still. And Deva kind of thinks, okay, how did you cross the flood by not pushing forward and not standing still? And, and the Buddha just replies, well, when I, when I pushed forward, I got whirled about. When I stood still, I sank. And not a definitive way to look at that, but an, a way we can pick that up and reflect on that is that uh, we can we can be there at feeling. We can we can watch feeling, and we can find that stillness there and the calmness. And when the water is settled and there's clarity, we can. We can move forward and pick things up and make, make much of the practice or set things down that need to be set down. Yeah, thank you, everybody. <laughs>